Welcome to Episode 2 of Health Law Expressions, Horty Springer's podcast on cutting-edge health law topics. I'm Dan Mulholland, and today with me is my partner, Charlie Chulak. Today's topic is patient safety organizations at the crossroads. So, Charlie, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Dan. Today we're going to discuss some recent developments at both the state and the federal level dealing with patient safety organizations. But to start off, Charlie, in 25 words or less, what are PSOs and why do we care? Well, that's going to be a real challenge in 25 words or less, but I'll do my best. because You're like... already up to about 12. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I really like to talk about patient safety organizations. And patient safety organizations are a concept or a creation of a federal law called the Patient Safety and Quality Improvement Act, which was enacted in 2005 with final regulations being implemented in 2008. And those final regulations were issued by the Department of Health and Human Services in conjunction with the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And the real thing that spurred the Patient Safety and Quality Improvement Act or the Patient Safety Act was the Institute of Medicine's 1999 report to Air as Human, which found between 45,000 and 98,000 patients died every year because of preventable medical errors. And what IOM did in that report was they made a few recommendations. And one of the recommendations was, listen, we think that providers need a protected space to analyze patient safety events. Without that protected space, providers aren't going to engage in this rigorous analysis that we think is necessary to reduce these preventable medical errors. So they made a recommendation to Congress, you know, to come up with a law to provide protections for that quality analysis work. So what Congress came up with was the Patient Safety Act. And the Patient Safety Act, again, created patient safety organizations. And in a nutshell, how the process works is that providers contract with a patient safety organization, they develop information or collect information as part of a patient safety evaluation system. That information is called patient safety work product. They report it to a patient safety organization. The PSO analyzes that information, reports recommendations, uh, clinical protocols, trends, et cetera, et cetera, back to the provider. So this would seem to be tailor-made for peer review information from hospitals, wouldn't it, Charlie? Does it cover that? That's correct. And, you know, for, the, for, for a long time, actually, since the implementation of the regulations, we thought that this is a wonderful way to analyze peer review information because if you think about it, I mean, the center of quality information is peer review information because physicians direct most of the care that's being provided at hospitals. The plain language of the statute under the regulations, uh, this protects peer review information as patient safety work product. But there have been a few court decisions recently, haven't there, that have questioned whether or not peer review information can be shielded from discovery by either holding it for reporting to a PSO or having a PSO deal with that information. Yeah, that's right. And most of the cases don't specifically talk about peer review information. There was one case that I'll get to in a minute in Kentucky called Tibbs v. Bunnell that they mentioned in passing peer review information. But A couple of the cases in Florida and Kentucky, and just to give you a little bit of context, those two states have historically, their courts have been, for lack of a better way of describing it, pretty hostile to any peer review privilege that is enacted by the state. For example, in Florida, they have something called Amendment 7, which gives patients, it's a constitutional amendment, which gives patients an access 
to any information that has to do with adverse medical incidents. And the courts in that state have really interpreted that constitutional amendment broadly, giving patients access to pretty much everything and overriding Florida's state peer review privilege. Kentucky, the state Supreme Court, has pretty much eviscerated their state peer review privilege by saying that it doesn't apply in medical malpractice suits. So with that context, we've had state courts from Florida and Kentucky issue opinions that weren't necessarily favorable when it comes to interpreting the privilege protections of the Patient Safety Act for patient safety work product. One was called Charles or Southern Baptist Hospital, and the Florida Supreme Court in that case pretty much said that if you develop information for any other purpose or if it's developed because of a regulatory requirement or for a state reporting requirement, that information cannot be patient safety work product and it's discoverable. And another thing that Charles case that the court said was that that information or our Amendment 7 overrides or is not affected by the Patient Safety Act. And the Patient Safety Act is a federal law. Amendment 7 is a state law, which was very odd because the Patient Safety Act specifically says that the law, the Patient Safety Act, and the privilege protections preempt any lesser state law. So it was kind of odd that uh, the Charles case said that. Now, in Kentucky, we had similar opinions, Tibbs versus Bunnell, but later opinions, Klaus, University of Kentucky opinion, the Supreme Court has walked back their sole reason interpretation of patient safety work product, that is, that information can only be patient safety work product if the sole reason that it was developed was for reporting to a PSO. And the courts in that state have basically said that, listen, we're not going to mess around with a provider's patient safety evaluation system as long as they're able to show that they've satisfied all their state reporting obligations, that information is going to continue to be protected as patient safety work product. Which is what the regulation said should happen. You could use it and report it for one purpose, but the information would still be privileged for other purposes. But how does AHRQ uh, treat this? Because they're the agency that lists PSOs, and the statute really doesn't give them any discretion. It just says, hey, if a PSO can demonstrate to you that it meets the criteria that apply to PSO, you have to list them. You can't decide which PSOs you want to list as being official PSOs or not. But has AHRQ gotten into this mix in terms of following some of these court cases? Yeah, they have. In in 2016, May of 2016, they issued informal guidance. And and the reason that I I characterize it that way is because it didn't go through the formal rulemaking process, which means that it's not binding on courts. Now, that being said, courts will still look for it for persuasive value. But what AHRQ did in that guidance, and they were still kind of baffled why they issued it, but what they did was they adopted this sole purpose interpretation. That is, information can only be patient safety work product if the sole purpose that it is developed is for reporting to a patient safety organization. And, you know, again, that information is nowhere in the statute. That information is nowhere in the regulations. So, you know, it goes without saying that we disagree with that guidance. And it was very surprising for a lot of providers that participate in the PSO process and for a lot of attorneys that work with providers that participate in the PSO process because it was kind of, you know, from left field and, you know, we really didn't understand it. We didn't understand the source. And, you know, there were some contradictions or some inconsistencies 
um, with the the regulations, both the proposed and the final regulations. And, you know, it's interesting that that seems to be even contrary to what the Justice Department has said in general about relying on sub-regulatory guidance like this. They've instructed U.S. attorneys and DOJ attorneys not to rely on this kind of unofficial junior varsity guidance from agencies in civil litigation. Whether that means that AHRQ would change their position or not is of no moment. But I agree with you, Charlie. It's you know clearly not supported by the regs. And I actually worked with people from HHS when they were developing those regs, and that was never the intent. So for whatever it's worth, AHRQ has taken that position, and people have to deal with it. But is there any way to get a PSO that deals with peer review information being able to either get listed, number one, or number two, if it's already listed, to use the PSO to protect uh, patient safety work product that includes peer review information from discovery. Sure, sure, there is. And, you know, this morning I was I was interested in, in you know, how many times the, the term peer review was used in the proposed and the final regulations. So I did a search, and it was used something like 16 times. Holy so, cow, you really have no life, do you? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it, it's very clear that the regulations, when they were developing these regulations, that they had considered peer review as a part of the PSO process. Now, in our work with providers and, and developing PSOs and, and having those PSOs go through the listing process, We've had experiences with AHRQ in the listing process, and you know we were getting the impression from them that you know you couldn't protect peer review or you know you couldn't include it as a part of the PSO process, which again you know was bizarre because the regulations you know explicitly contemplated peer review being a part of this process. So we wrote them a letter and we said you know this is the impression that we're getting from you. It sounds like you're saying that peer review can't be protected. And, you know, they got back to us, and in the first paragraph, that they said, that's not correct. Uh, you know, peer review can be protected. Um, you probably can't include your whole peer review process, especially, you know, when information is being used to, quote, unquote, discipline a physician. Which, you know, again, I'm wondering if it's, they just don't understand how the peer review process, the modern peer review process works, because... 99.9% of peer review is educational, it's performance improvement, and it's not designed to discipline physicians. But we still think that you can Im- include peer review information as a part of the PSO process. And to tell you the truth, I mean, that's where you're going to get your most important data. You know, give that information to PSO. They can do physician-to-physician comparison. Um, they can identify problematic trends in a physician's practice, report back to that physician and say, here's where we think you can improve. Um, so we think that it's a real valuable way of reporting information to PSO and getting real valuable recommendations back. So there's still hope that if you have a relationship with a PSO and that PSO is willing and able to process peer review information as part of the patient safety evaluation system and the hospital treats it as patient safety work product, at least it gives you one more argument to put forward if somebody tries to get that in a malpractice case or some other case, right? Yeah, that's correct. So. Uh, I understand that the Office of Inspector General in HHS has now gotten into the act, and they have some kind of information request out there asking for hospitals to tell how uh, they relate to PSOs? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we were really excited when we heard about this and came out in March 2018. The OIG has said, listen, we want to get some feedback, you know, from hospitals that participate uh, with PSOs that have a contract with PSOs to report information. And we also want to get feedback from AHRQ about how they've been supervising the PSO process. And we think that what they're really looking for in these surveys of hospitals 
is you know for candid information about the PSO program, you know its value. Uh, what hospitals are getting out of the PSO program? What are some of the drawbacks of the PSO program? And, you know, to be honest, you know, we recommend that hospitals, you know, be candid in, 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 these, in these surveys. I mean, if it was me that was filling out one of these surveys, some of the things that I would say is that, you know, AHRQ has started to micromanage this program a little bit too much. Uh, this is a voluntary program. They're going to discourage providers from participating if, you know, every time something comes up, they want to have five or six phone calls, or during the relisting period, they want to have six 45-minute phone calls, you know, to assess provider or a PSO's compliance with the program. But it's a real opportunity to provide good feedback to the OIG. So I was going to tell you, tell us what you really think, Charlie, but you did. Um, yeah. Is there any final thoughts? Again, we think, you know, as a firm and individually, I think that this is a wonderful program. You know, anything that gives providers an opportunity to improve patient safety and the quality of health care that's being provided at their hospital or at their entity is a great opportunity. It's even a better opportunity if you can protect that information because it enhances the rigor of that analysis. Well, Charlie, thanks a lot. Hopefully this was useful to the folks out there, and thank you for tuning in. And I'd like to thank the members of our studio audience who you heard earlier uh, for listening to us today. So hopefully you'll join us on the next podcast and also uh, look for things on our website in terms of further developments, audio conferences, and seminars that deal with these issues. Thanks, Charlie. All right. Thanks, Dan.